from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, March 30th. I'm Marco Werman. France cracks down on suspected Islamist militants. We'll hear how today's arrests and a far-right rally in Denmark tomorrow connect to the killings in Toulouse earlier this month. And later in the program, a Maori filmmaker from New Zealand debunks a stereotype. Yeah, I had an interview once, and, and the guy said, uh, so what was it like taking the cameras to your village and the elders seeing these cameras for the first time? <laughs> you know, these soul-capturing contraptions, you know, how, how did they feel about that? You know, we've had TV there for like 60 years. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Nova, with Hunting the Elements. David Pogue, technology correspondent of the New York Times, guides viewers through the world of weird extreme chemistry. Wednesday, April 4th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. French President Nicolas Sarkozy promised a robust response to the killings in Toulouse earlier this month, and today that response was evident. Police in France arrested 19 suspected Islamist militants in a series of raids. Several were in Toulouse, the southern city where self-professed al-Qaeda sympathizer Mohamed Merah killed seven people. Merah, who was killed last week after a standoff with police, was buried yesterday. Vivian Walt is Time Magazine's Paris correspondent. She says the suspects arrested today had been on the government's radar well before the shootings in Toulouse. Many of these people, probably all of them, have been under surveillance for a long time. These are many of them connected to jihadi movements that operate in France, one in particular, which has been in operation for several years. So the police have had these people under watch for a long time. And quite usefully under watch, actually, they were, uh, you know, hoping to really piece together some bigger picture of what uh, Islamist movements might be planning, whether there is any kind of sinister attack plot in the works. Mm. And um, now that they're in custody, it's very hard to tell what they can gain from these people at all. So this comes right after the Mara shooting spree. Sources say the arrests are not related, but the French prosecutor has said they are still looking for accomplices. Does that suggest a wider terrorist cell or network? I think that obviously French officials are already quite terrified that there will be another attack. They were caught absolutely off guard with this one. And if one can imagine that it really only took one lone person with not very sophisticated weapons to bring the whole country to a standstill for days, and it could happen again. It certainly could. So in that respect, the country, I guess, does feel a certain sense of safety with these 19 people behind bars. What impact could uh, this have on uh, upcoming presidential elections in France, with President Sarkozy flexing his muscle this way, especially with regards to the Muslim community? Well, this has already had a major impact on the election campaign. Until two weeks ago, President Sarkozy was so way behind in the polls, really nobody thought he had 
any chance at all of winning this election, which the first round of which is in three weeks' time. And suddenly you have a fairly narrow race between him and the socialist candidate Francois Hollande. Sarkozy has made up a lot of ground from the Mohamed Merah incident. And it's not simply the matter of security. It's also a matter of the fact that President Sarkozy showed a side of himself that French people had simply forgotten about. He came out as a human being with a big heart. Um, he was deeply moved at the funeral. Suddenly there was uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the human being that had uh, somehow been in hiding for quite a long time. And so how does France's moderate Muslim community feel about all this? There are certainly a number of Muslim leaders who probably would prefer to have President Sarkozy in charge for a second uh, term in office because it does suggest that there will be a slightly tougher law and order policy. And for a lot of Muslim leaders, their nightmare scenario is a kind of jihadi movement that grows up within the poor, marginalized suburbs around the elite cities of France. It has been their problem for many years And it's likely to be the problem for many years. Vivian Walt, Time Magazine's Paris correspondent. Thanks as always, Vivian. You're welcome. Tensions about terrorism and immigrant communities are on the rise, not just in France, but throughout Europe. Far-right groups in several countries are trying to use the Toulouse shootings as a rallying point. Tomorrow, members of far-right and anti-immigration groups from across Europe will be gathering in Aarhus, Denmark. The event is being organized by the English Defense League, or EDL. Matthew Feldman of the University of Northampton in England studies far-right groups in Britain. He's been following the development of the EDL. They're about three years old now, and they very directly formed in response to an event of great offense in England, uh, which was the homecoming of some soldiers who had been posted to Afghanistan. And they were met by really some radical Islamists with jeers and um, some very offensive slogans. And what you saw was the more nationalistic members of the local, in this case, Luton community, really coming together, many of them from the so-called football hooliganism background, some of them much more explicitly connected with the far right, and forming what ultimately became the English Defense League, which really was the first of these street-based movements that saw themselves as either a human rights organization, if one believes their rhetoric, or indeed a counter-jihad movement that has seen a number of the Defense Leagues of varying degrees of political adherence and proximity to the English Defense League springing up right across Europe. Do these Defense Leagues have as their common goal a a European-wide movement? Do they want political power? Do they want to get elected into parliament at some point? I think that's one of the reasons that tomorrow is so important. Um, One of the things we're going to be seeing is whether or not there will be a sort of European parliamentary party that comes out of this, whether or not the groups that tend to be more suited, for example, the Stop the Islamization of America, which is headed by Pamela Geller and its counterpart, Stop the Islamization of Europe, which tend to be more party political movements. One of the problems with what we might consider social movements like the Defense Leagues is that they tend not to be as interested in gaining political power in that way, but much more interested in in actually protesting on the street, having a physical presence on the street. And it remains to be seen how that can be channeled into any kind of democratic politics. Since the uh, English Defense Leagues kind of started these Defense Leagues, what what do they believe in? What's their philosophy? 
Well, I think that if you ask them directly, they'll say that they're against militant Islam or violent terroristic forms of Islamism. But the problem is really once you scratch the surface, you find that this very quickly bleeds into a dislike of Muslim people and, and, and amongst some of the rank and file members, simply just a dislike of people with brown skin. So I think that one of the problems for people trying to respond to the Defense League is distinguishing between something that really all citizens of goodwill in America and Europe can agree on. Terrorism is unacceptable, whether it's Islamist or far-right terrorist, end of story. But I think the problem that many people have encountered in trying to respond to the English Defense League is that very quickly seems to devolve into a prejudice against Muslim people. Now, we just heard a report on the follow-up in France to uh, the uh, killings of Mohamed Marat, a Muslim who was born to French parents of Algerian descent and what's been happening in the wake of those killings. How have those events in France played into the message of, say, the EDL? I mean, has Mohamed Marat become any sort of symbol for the anti-immigration ideology of the EDL? I think that it certainly could. And one of the things that we're seeing is the attempt to paint all Muslims as precisely this kind of terrorist person. And I think that's the danger. I think that Muslim communities right across Europe will be as quick as every other community of goodwill to recognize that, in fact, these are one or two percent of a, a you know already marginalized and persecuted minority. And what we need to be aware of is, in fact, that these terrorists have no purchase of support in whatever kinds of communities they may be operating in. And that's something that the EDL tries to push further and really stigmatize anyone who might be a Muslim. And I think that's where most people are content to call them a new far-right group, one that emphasizes not biology like, for example, uh, Nazism, but really having a cultural critique, saying that we're not concerned about issues of race, we're concerned about issues of culture. I've seen reports that many anti-fascists are expected to show up tomorrow in Aarhus. Who are these anti-fascists and is there a risk of violence between the different groups tomorrow? I think there's absolutely a risk of violence. What can happen is we see far left elements from, let's say, the Unite Against Fascism or Denmark's Project Antifa really willing to square off physically with members of this new far right. One can only hope that these people will be kept at a safe distance from each other so that uh, all the insults that can be hurled is all that's going to be hurled. Matthew Feldman is a senior lecturer in 20th century history at the University of Northampton in England. Thanks very much indeed, Matthew. Thank you. In Britain, a controversial politician has made a surprising comeback. George Galloway is a strong critic of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Last night, he swept aside mainstream parties in a special election, and he won in a district with a large Muslim community. The world's Laura Lynch reports. George Galloway, riding a wave of voter support, rode on the shoulders of his campaign workers after the count was made official. Never much given to understatement, he accepted victory with his usual flourish. This, the most sensational result in British by-election history, bar none, represents the Bradford Spring. This is an uprising amongst thousands of people. Those words may well resonate with many in the northern English city of Bradford, home to a sizable Muslim population. And Galloway certainly knows how to attract an audience. It happened when he appeared before the U.S. Senate in 2005. This time I'm going to ask you to rise and please raise your right hand. Galloway was there to defend himself against claims he received illicit payments from the United Nations Oil for Food program in Iraq. But he wasted no time going on the attack against the senators questioning him. And I told the world 
that your case for the war was a pack of lies. By that time, Galloway had already been expelled from the Labour Party for inciting British soldiers to defy orders in Iraq. Galloway's own reputation was already in trouble for going to Baghdad to praise Saddam Hussein in footage shot in 1994. Away from politics, Galloway still managed to stay in the spotlight, appearing on the reality TV series Big Brother, dressed as a cat in a leotard, teasing another participant. Now, would you like me to be the cat? Yes, please. So Galloway certainly had celebrity, but up until last night he was a politician without a constituency to call his own. Now his former colleagues in the Labour Party are trying to figure out just how they lost what was considered a safe seat. They even chose a Muslim candidate. Furkan Naim is chairman of the Students' Union Council at Bradford University and is the student representative on Labour's national executive. He went round, you know, visited the mosques, visited the Muslim communities, and, and he even sent a letter out to all the Muslim families in the area saying that I don't drink, you know, for example, and, you know, I'm a better Muslim than the other candidate, which I think was a bit poor, to be honest. Today, Galloway claims his victory isn't due to courting the Muslim vote, but to the mainstream party's failure to improve the lives of people who live in Bradford. Last night, though, he was sounding a more familiar note, casting his win as an anti-war declaration. One of the reasons why they were so decisively defeated this evening was because the public do not believe that they have atoned for their role in the invasion and occupation of other people's countries. Whatever the reason, George Galloway is now set to return to the Theatre of Parliament. Although some may dispute whether his win was history-making, there is one group likely to agree with him. Galloway beat long odds, meaning British bookies, are making the biggest by-election payout ever. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch, in London. Still ahead on the program, a well-heeled soccer team builds its own resort in the Persian Gulf. On The World from PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The highest-grossing New Zealand film ever was released in the U.S. this month. It's called Boy, and it takes place in a Maori village in rural New Zealand. In the movie, director Taika Waititi revisits his childhood community of Waiho Bay. The year is 1984, and the story focuses on the relationship between an 11-year-old boy who goes by the name Boy and his estranged father who returns home after getting out of prison. Waititi hired children from his village for the film, putting a lot of trust in James Rolston in the title role of Boy. Rolston lights up the screen in every scene. Here's Boy, early in the film, talking to his pet goat-slash-confidant named Leaf. What do you want to do, eh, Leaf? Might as well just stay here, eh? Had a massive day at school today. There was a big-ass rumble at school. Most of the children were involved. I wasn't, because I'm a good boy. I don't like fighting, eh? Wow, lots of things happened, but what else? Oh, yeah. I see my girlfriend, Chardonnay. She invites me back to her house, and we have McDonald's to eat. It was yum. 
The movie is shot entirely in Waiho Bay, a place filmmaker Taika Waititi says is still a lot like it was when he was a kid there. It's a very tiny little country town on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand, which is a country, another country on Earth. I mean, there's probably about 300 people, the population of this town, and I'm probably related to all of them. (laughs) Uh, So it's quite hard to find love, or legal love, anyway. (laughs) And I grew up there in the 80s, and, you know, it was a pretty special childhood. The 80s was a great time because I think adults, like, gave kids a lot more trust, and, you know, they really kind of believed that, that kids would be able to look after themselves without killing each other. And, you know, it's different now. Kids will kill each other. So um, I, I feel like I was quite lucky to grow up in that time. And it was a very innocent time, and especially in New Zealand. It, I feel like the 80s for us was sort of like our coming-of-age era, trying to find our identity. So, you know, I grew up in this tiny town. There's one store, one pub. And the school that I went to in 1984, the, you know, the role at the school was like 30 kids. And when we shot this film there two years ago, it was 28. I mean, visually, it's kind of striking because you've got these cornfields right next to this beautiful Pacific Ocean. Yeah. It's kind of an unreal landscape. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's an incredible place to grow up and and a very beautiful place to shoot a film. So the film was set in 1984, and the story revolves around an 11-year-old boy who is referred to as Boy. His mother died when she had her second child, Boy's younger brother, And uh, in the beginning of the film, the father is also not in the picture. But then he shows up. Uh, He's been in jail. He's been released. And Taika, you're not just a filmmaker. You also play the role of the father. So here's that scene where you and Boy meet. Who are you? Boy. What boy? Alamine. Alamine. Yeah. No, I'm your dad. Oh. Hey, Dad. Hey. Welcome back. Good to see you. Good to see you. How's it been going? Good. How's it been going with you? Good. I gotta say, wow, it, I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's painful to watch Boy and his dad, you, try and get acquainted again. It's oh, just yeah, yeah. he wants so much, and his dad doesn't even know how to behave. Oh yeah, no, no. This is a typical relationship where the kid parents the parent. And despite the separation, there's also some common ground for them. Boy is obsessed with Michael Jackson, for example, so is the dad. And Boy sees his dad as a hero who can dance as well as Michael Jackson. And the dad also sees himself as a kind of samurai hero. Were these obsessions of yours when you were growing up in the 80s? Definitely Michael Jackson and all the pop references were obsessions of mine. I think we were all very obsessed with Native Americans. You know, we all kind of like loved the idea of what it was to be fighting against cowboys. And, and was that, you know, were Native Americans kind of role models for, for the Maori? To some degree. There was a point through, I think, the 50s and 60s where because for Maori it was you were punished if you spoke your language at school and you were kind of brought up to be ashamed of being Maori. And so like I think as a result they tried to identify with other cultures you know, and tried to latch on to other romantic cultures as well. And so the father character, you know, he's obsessed with like you know, samurais. And, and it's all about fantasy. It's all about how you remove yourself from who you are right now and, and try and replace yourself with something else. And so there's like three characters. There's Boy, his younger brother Rocky, and the father Alamein. And they all are engaged in this world of fantasy. And really the movie's about these three people, a family, getting to know each other. Yeah, getting to know each other, revolving around the, the replacement of this one very important person who died and how it's affected them all. and Their mother. Yeah, and how they deal with their own little pieces of guilt 
You used a lot of local Maori people in the film, as we said. Tell us about the experience shooting there in Waiho Bay. Did you find yourself negotiating with the community over what you wanted to do with the movie and their, perhaps, demands and limitations that maybe tradition imposed? Actually, you know, it's all fine, really. They're so supportive. I mean, it's the first film that's ever been shot there. And, um, I mean, they've seen cameras and everything and, you know, like technology and TV and, and lights and everything. Some people, I think, have an idea of what Māori culture is like and what, like, rural New Zealand is like. And I think to some Americans, it's almost like, you know, tribes in Papua New Guinea or something. I had an interview once, and, and the guy said, uh, so what was it like taking the cameras to your village and the elders seeing these cameras for the first time? <laughs> and, you know, these soul-capturing contraptions, you know. How, how did they feel about that? You know, we've had TV there for, like, 60 years. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it's this interesting, like... Just finding out what people's idea or preconceptions of, of what Māori life is like in New Zealand. You know, I think they really believe that we are kind of living like 200 years ago. You know, it, it struck me that we hear so little about New Zealand cinema, but one of the other best films that I've seen is Nikki Caro's 2002 movie Whale Rider. Your film Boy is a gem, not to mention New Zealand's highest grossing film. New Zealand just feels like it's quietly producing popular masterpieces. What's going on there? We don't make many films, though. You know, we make like six or seven films a year, yeah, well, and you probably hear about one every three years. <laughs> so I don't know what still the not a bad hit rate. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and interestingly, most of the films that do travel are Maori stories. I just think we're more interesting. And <laughs> this film did incredibly well back home, and I think it's really, really proves that people want to see themselves on screen. You know, they want to see their own stories being told. And you know, New Zealand cinema in general is known to be quite dark. You know, we're sort of like the Iceland of the South Pacific. <laughs> you know, we, uh, you know, very isolated. It's very hard to escape. So generally, what we're known for are films like Once Were Warriors, which is basically people just getting drunk and killing each other. And then, uh, you know, things like Wild Rider, which is, you know, another way of looking at Māori culture, the more spiritual. And that kind of film really, like, solidifies people's idea that we just, you know, spend all our time riding animals and talking to ghosts. But, um, Consulting the elders. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do the elders think? And then, yeah, and then you have a film like Boy, which, you know, again, is trying to change the angles. You live in Los Angeles with about a month, a year in New Zealand. How hard was it in making Boy to tap into the authenticity of uh, Waiho Bay? Seems like it'd be a well, tough Well, I'm from there, so it was very yeah. easy to just, you know, I wrote the whole thing, making it like having a fictional narrative, but then hanging it against a, you know, a very real backdrop, putting this sort of weird, disconnected family story against that. And... I felt a duty anyway to make it authentic because everyone from there is going to know if I'm like putting stuff in that wasn't, you know, right. wasn't happening then, you know, like so everyone could recognize the first microwave in the in the neighborhood <laughs> and things like that, you know, or like the fact that we all started our cars with like teaspoons and things. Taika Waititi, great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. By the way, check out our video of Taika Waititi explaining why he thinks New Zealand is the Iceland of the South Pacific. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how churches are helping in the fight against HIV-AIDS in Swaziland, with some exceptions. We can lay hands to an HIV-positive person. And that positive person can be negative if really he believes in that. That's coming up on The World. 
ERI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Change has come so fast to Burma, it makes you dizzy. Not even half a year ago, pro-democracy activist Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest. Now she's a candidate for the Burmese parliament. In fact, this Sunday, it'll be the first time in two decades that Aung San Suu Kyi will be on a ballot in Burma, also known as Myanmar. But today, Aung San Suu Kyi expressed concern that the election would not be genuinely free and fair. So in Tan is the editor of the BBC's Burmese service. He's gone from London to Burma to cover Sunday's election and joins us from Rangoon. First of all, uh, So in Tan, why would Aung San Suu Kyi say today that this weekend's election might not be genuinely free and fair? One of the reasons was that some of her party candidates were threatened, two were even physically assaulted. And uh, the party signbooks were torn down in some places. And another thing is about the electoral register. There are many irregularities in the register. So she is quite concerned because Burma had the experience a year ago in 2010 elections that it's quietly believed that the results have been rigged. This is the first time since 1990 uh, that Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, the NLD, the National League for Democracy, are openly campaigning. Is she attracting lots of crowds? Very much, yes. Wherever she went in the past months, you could see hundreds of thousands of people turned out to see her, welcome her, shouting. Last time I came here, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi registered herself as a candidate for her party. And then I went to that register ceremony and then there are hundreds of thousands of people turning up to see her. They were shouting, they were cheering for her. So they say Aung San Suu Kyi, or Mother Sue, as she is now quite commonly known across the country. Mother Sue. Mother Sue, yes. Mummy Sue. So, I mean, huge support wherever she goes. And then her party candidates are also very confident that because they represent Aung San Suu Kyi, they are confident that they would win. One of the candidates told us that he was not a very well-known person, but when he visited a place and then he said, oh, I'm from the... Aung San Suu Kyi's party, people turned out and then promised to vote for him. Now, the political prisoners in Burma who were released uh, not so long as several months ago, are they participating in this election? Will they get to vote? Are they? Are any of them candidates, perhaps? The top leaders decided that no, not this time. But they will support. They will support NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi's decision to run in these elections. But they are also very popular. They are highly respected because, you know, for 20 years they have sacrificed a lot. So they attract huge respect from the local people. And what do you think is at stake for Burma's reputation internationally? It's huge stake because international community, United States, EU, ASEAN, everyone is calling for free and fair elections. EU will decide their stance on Burma next month. So, Intan, you were born in Burma. You left 11 years ago. What's it been like for you to, to return there? Um, I, I've even heard that you can now buy Aung San Suu Kyi souvenirs at the airport now. I mean, that seems implausible, and yet it's happening. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's great change, especially the mood among the people, which is much more 
visible. And previously, you know, people were so afraid. Even for BBC, when I called people inside that, they were quite scared to talk to us on the phone or give their names when they give us interview. But now people freely talk to us. I can go about in towns with my microphone. I can stop anybody and ask questions. So people's love for freedom, people's bravery, people becoming much bolder, that's a very visible sign in the country at present. So in Tan, the editor of the BBC's Burmese service, speaking with us from Myanmar, where he'll be observing Sunday's election. As we heard, the Burmese government is hoping the vote will help it gain legitimacy in the eyes of the international community. And as it does, slowly gain legitimacy. Longtime opponents of the government are having to reconsider their place in a changing Burma. Bruce Wallace reports on one such opposition group. The current offices of the National Coalition Government of the Union of Burma, or NCGUB, are in a low, gray, unremarkable office building facing the parking lot of a metro rail stop in Rockville, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. It's a long way from their first headquarters. This video is from 1992 in Manorplaw, a tiny outpost on the Thai-Burma border. At the time, it was home to a rebel army that had been battling Burma's central government for decades. The rebels were sheltering the NCGUB. It wasn't how things were supposed to go. Two years earlier, in 1990, NCGUB's members were part of a wave of opposition politicians who won parliamentary seats in a nationwide election. But the military government ignored the results and cracked down on the opposition, including its standard-bearer Aung San Suu Kyi. A handful of would-be MPs fled to Burma's border with Thailand to start a government in exile. You have to go on foot and then climb the mountains and pass the streams and this kind of things, you know. And I got sick. <laughs> Sane Nguyen was in the first group to escape. He's Su Chi's first cousin and prime minister of the NCGUB. He made the last part of the 10-day journey in a stretcher. The exile government's first order of business was to let the world know what was happening in Burma. They found an early ally in the government of Norway. They were robbed from a, an election victory, as easy as that. Jan Egeland was a Norwegian deputy foreign minister at the time. He's since held posts at the UN and is currently Europe director for Human Rights Watch. You instantly felt an enormous sympathy for these uh, very low-key, nice people who had this tremendous story of injustice in their country. In 1992, the Norwegian government gave the NCGUB money and technology to set up the Democratic Voice of Burma, a shortwave radio station that broadcast into the closed-off country. Early on, it was mostly a way to get the exile government's message into Burma. In the last decade, it's become a more serious journalistic enterprise. Sane Nguyen and other NCGUB members also started traveling from country to country, trying to keep Burma issues on their radar. They were regular visitors to the UN General Assembly and helped shape a series of Burma resolutions passed by that body. They were very instrumental in ensuring that the resolutions talked about democracy, human rights, tripartite dialogue, all of the key issues that are now sort of the conventional and the widely accepted talking points on Burma. Brian Joseph is a Burma expert at the National Endowment for Democracy, a U.S. government-funded foundation that is a main supporter of the NCGUB. He says that, with opposition inside Burma muzzled, and often imprisoned, the exile government became an important conduit. So its role really was as a spokes organization and a way for the people inside Burma to speak to the international community through these surrogates. 
Now, as the Burmese government reforms and the NCGUB's colleagues in Burma seem poised to pick up many of the parliamentary seats at play in Sunday's election, such surrogacy is becoming less necessary. And that means the NCGUB has some decisions to make. If elections go smoothly, the NCGUB will vote on whether to disband. Their funders are already focusing more on groups working in the country. Sane Wynn says his group's budget is a quarter of what it was five years ago. The changes in Burma also raise some personal questions for the group's members. Burmese President Thane Sane has publicly invited exiles to return. Some have accepted the invitation, but so far the NCGUB members are staying put. For one thing, Sane Wynn doesn't want to go back on these terms. If you go back to Burma, you have to go back because it is our country. I was born there. I am a citizen. I have the right. Not that because the president said you can come. Tint Sway, another NCGUB member, was a physician in Burma. He won a parliamentary seat in 1990 and escaped to India during the government crackdown. I have been sentenced to 25 years when I fled to India. That aura is still valid there. And my house and my clinic are being sealed since then. And my doctor's license has been revoked. So how can I go back? And, like many people who have watched Burma for a while, they're hesitant to trust the government. Sane Wynn points out that the constitution the government wrote in 2008 leaves the generals a lot of power, among other things reserving a quarter of the parliamentary seats for members of the military. Their hesitance may not be that surprising. They've seen the Burmese government change its mind before. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace. The world's Mary Kay Magsad recently traveled to Myanmar, her first time there in 17 years. You can find her reporting and unique first impressions of the country's recent changes, all at theworld.org. In the history of the AIDS epidemic in Africa, there's long been a divide between public health advocates and churches. Religious leaders often promote ideas about HIV and the use of condoms that run counter to public health campaigns. But that's starting to change, at least in one country in southern Africa. The world's Alex Galifant reports. Swaziland is an overwhelmingly Christian country. There are churches everywhere you look from warehouses in the city to concrete huts in the countryside. It's not unusual to hear praise songs like this when you're simply waiting for a bus. Swaziland is also one of the hardest-hit countries in the world when it comes to AIDS. It's estimated that as many as a quarter of all Swazi adults are HIV positive. Churches have long played an important role in caring for the sick, But in terms of HIV prevention, they've been at odds with the public health community. It's often come down to one issue. Until recently, Swazi church leaders publicly rejected condoms. But now you hear many comments like this one. This is Pastor Johannes Mazibugu. We follow the scientific revelation that uh, they need to make sure that they use condoms so that they don't continue infecting or being infected. Mazibugu heads the Alliance Church in the Swazi capital, Baban. He's an independent church leader, which means that, unlike, say, a Catholic priest, he's free to adjust his teachings, including on the use of condoms. Along with other pastors, Mazibugu's fiercely opposed to people having sex outside of marriage, but he knows that some do, and he's changed his mind on how to protect them. That kind of shift in attitude might provide an opening, according to Tessa Dooms. She's a sociologist at Witts University in neighboring South Africa. 
the bridge between religious and non-religious sectors of society is the biggest gulf in dealing with HIV AIDS. Churches that are willing to partner with the public health sector could bridge that gulf, and that could be important in Swaziland's fight against HIV. Now, Swaziland's not short on anti-HIV campaigns. You can't move without encountering billboards advocating single-partner relationships or leaflets promoting circumcision. But virtually all the young Swazis I met said they don't really pay attention. Here's 21-year-old Zama Simalan. Honestly, I think when you come to me and say, Zama, eh, we have to talk about HIV/AIDS. I don't need this 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 thing because it's now boring. We would just say, ah, they've started with their AIDS thing. But every week, Simalan goes to church. Public health advocates argue that young people like her may be more likely to listen to HIV prevention messages if they hear them coming from a pulpit. Churches provide context for HIV messages. The way you behave has an effect on your community, and being part of a church in Swaziland means being with people you know and trust. For you. The services at Alliance Church are filled with scripture and song. Behind the scenes, Pastor Johannes Mazibugu has instituted an HIV program. He himself is available to talk with people about their concerns, but the Alliance program goes beyond that. If they want to see a medical doctor, they come on a certain day to see the doctor. If they want to see a nurse, likewise, or just to get some information on what to do on the issue of HIV, the people who are trained are available. At the New Light Zion Church in the city of Manzini, they hold HIV testing sessions in the church hall. Church President Stephen Mlanga sets the example for his congregation. I can show you my card. Uh, you test today, they say wait for three months, test again, come again after three months, test again. Public health advocates in Swaziland are pleased to see churches promoting medical education like this. But they also see downsides. Some of the beliefs expressed in Swazi churches run counter to the science of HIV. On a Sunday morning at New Light Zion Church, a visibly sick woman sits in a chair. Members of the congregation, dressed in white robes, walk around her in a circle. They pray and touch her as they pass. The priest Stephen Plunger explains. We can lay hands to an HIV-positive person and that positive person can be negative. If really he believes in that. It's obviously difficult for us as a medical scientific organization to listen to messages such as, you know, let's, let's pray HIV away. Emeric Pegian is with Doctors Without Borders in Swaziland. Clearly, uh, there is a, a need to have a coherent message and, and not to raise doubts. And there's one more point on which the public health community remains sharply divided from churches in Swaziland. Their unwillingness to reach out to men who have sex with men. Here again is Johannes Mazibugu of Alliance Church. There are what we call essentials when it comes to Christian values. There, it's not easy for us to compromise because we have a mandate from the Word of God. And that's the key thing. Churches see themselves as instruments of God, not assets to be used by the public health community. There is a surge in interest in partnerships between the two groups. There's also a tension. 
Neither side expects to see eye to eye on everything. But they do agree on this. The scale of the HIV crisis demands the effort. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant, Swaziland. Alex went to Swaziland with the help of the International Reporting Project. You can see many of the churches Alex visited in Swaziland. He's got a great slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Spanish soccer team Real Madrid just announced a plan to build a billion-dollar island resort. If you're wondering where, then you're on to today's GeoQuiz. The resort, to include elite sports facilities, luxury accommodations, and a theme park, is to be built along the coast of the Persian Gulf, specifically in one of the seven United Arab Emirates at the northeastern tip of the Federation. We'll give you a minute to come up with the answer. First, to hear more on the venture, we're going to turn to Andy Zimbalist, who teaches economics at Smith College. Uh, Real Madrid wants to attract more than a million visitors a year. It'll feature a 10,000-seat stadium. What do you think? A good investment or not? I would not advise them on this investment because when you put a resort in the middle of nowhere, how many people are going to go? But they supposedly have nearly 300 million people worldwide who follow the team. It's probably either the most valuable or the second most valuable and well-known soccer team in the world competing with Manchester United. And like every other good sports team these days, they're searching for markets. They want to conquer as much of the world market potential as they can. One of the problems if you have a sports team, either in Spain or in Great Britain or the United States, is that you're pretty much bound by the domestic market unless you do something very extraordinary, like what Real Madrid is trying to do Mm. uh, right now. They're pursuing money. The goal of pursuing money in the case of Real Madrid is is really to improve the competitive resources of the soccer team so that they can go after the best people, the best players in the international players market. So tell us where the middle of nowhere is in this case. Where where is the Real Madrid resort planned? Well, it's being planned in one of the uh, emirates in the Middle East on on a man-made island on the emirate of Ras al-Haima. That's the answer to our geo-quiz. Ras al-Haima, the ruler of that emirate, has said he hopes the project would bring fans together from around the globe. I mean, I, I know Real Madrid has international fans, but does that business model make sense to you? I mean, flying people in to appreciate Real Madrid and the United Arab Emirates? Look, it, it, what, what's been going on in United Arab Emirates uh, for many years now is they're seeking international tourism. They've gone to extraordinary lengths to do that. They're, they're hosting tennis tournaments. They're hosting soccer tournaments. They're going to host the World Cup. They're trying to host, host the Olympics. I think that these are areas of the world that have an enormous concentration of wealth because of their oil. In some cases, they have more wealth than they know what to do with. They see the sports world as being part of the international culture that's growing. And this is an opportunity for them at least to attempt to bring more tourism and more business to their areas and to diversify some of their wealth and find some additional uses for their wealth in part of the international economy that has both been relatively stable and growing. Sports increasingly is part of the international culture. And, uh, you know, unlike other sectors of the economy, which come and go, sports seems to be here and to be expanding. And one of the things that's happening 
uh, certainly in the United States and certainly in Europe right now, is the advent of some new technological features like the DVR, the digital video recorder, is making it possible for normal television viewers to record their television shows and then watch them at a later time without looking at the commercials. Sports fans don't do that. Sports fans want to watch their games live. And so what's happening is advertisers are migrating to sports, to sporting events. And this is increasing the value. We're seeing an explosion, uh, almost a bubble in value of, of sports franchises, witnessed most recently by the sale of the Los Angeles Dodgers for over $2 billion. Right. So I think that the Arab oil investors are, are recognizing these different features of, of the sports industry and trying to be a part of it. Andy Zimbalis, professor of economics at Smith College. Thanks a lot for your input. My pleasure. Music there from the late Earl Scruggs. The banjo master died this week at the age of 88. He was such a pioneer of the banjo, it feels at times as if he invented it. But the banjo, as a lot of research shows, originated in Africa. Banjo virtuoso Bela Fleck saw that firsthand. He also knew Earl Scruggs quite well. Bela Fleck is on tour at the moment and joins us from his stop in Indianapolis. Bela, Earl Scruggs was an innovator on the banjo. You're a master player as well, deeply influenced like all banjo players by Scruggs. And you've toured the world. Did Earl Scruggs have international appeal? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, when I was first playing bluegrass, um, banjo had really exploded in Japan and um, the Czech Republic where there are just tons of banjo players. <laughs> Japan and the Czech Republic is a couple of strange places to find uh, Earl Scruggs worshippers. But again, Earl Scruggs had this this thing, this X factor that made people uh, that had no idea what a banjo was want to find out what it was and go out and learn to play it. Now, several years ago, uh, you traveled to Africa in search of the banjo's roots. I-, I was curious to know if you ever spoke with Earl Scruggs about what you found and his reaction to what you saw. Uh, I did. I did talk to him about it. In fact, I asked him a bit about, you know, if, uh, what black banjo players he might have heard when he was young. And he just said that, that he wasn't really aware of much of that, and that wasn't something he was he was about. I mean, I think he was just really about sitting with his banjo in his hands and playing it and seeing what came to him and enjoying the, uh, the spontaneity and the, um, the mechanics of playing it. Mm. and the heart of playing it. Um, but no, I don't think he thought about it a lot. So people were always asking him all, all kinds of questions, and uh, some of them weren't really his concern. Of course, we now have, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned whether he knew of any black banjo players, but we do now have the Carolina Chocolate Drops who are tapping into that old kind of back porch Appalachian fiddle and banjo music that uh, African Americans used to play. Yeah, I think that's a great development that somebody is bringing that that back because that's it's important for people to know about it. Right. So the the circle goes kind of through the Appalachians and back to Africa now. Well, we'll have a link to the audio postcards you filed for us from Africa at the world.org. Uh, before we let you go, Bela, uh, with the loss of Earl Scruggs, and I don't want to uh, assume that you're in a princely position here, but I'm wondering if you maybe feel a greater responsibility now to carry the banjo torch, not just here, but around the world. Well, you know, it's funny. A few people have written that to me, you know, and said, okay, now you're the guy. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very strange uh, thing. We all feel like we need to, boy, I don't know how to say this, but um, no, I, I don't think anything has changed, really. I mean, I just, uh, I just think he's great, and we're very different, but I wouldn't be anything without him. 
I loved his music. Um, it's just a very pure, special music, and I think it's one of the great things that America has has delivered into the music world. Well, Bela, thanks so much for speaking with us about Earl Scruggs. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. And we'll close with a performance of Bela Fleck and Earl Scruggs performing this tune, Home Sweet Home. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.